0: Well, good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you on this Lord's Day. We truly do have a wonderful God who rules and reigns, and that should be a great comfort to us. As we come before our text this morning, as we come before the preaching of the Word, let's ask the Lord for help. So if you would, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather as a church body at this point in time without fear of persecution, that we can gather to worship your holy name. Father, you rule and reign. Please do help us to reflect on that, uh, that it may be an encouragement to us, it may be a comfort to us, O God. Help us, Lord, as we approach your word this morning. Do your work in our hearts, Father. And I just pray that the Word would do the work. We love you, and we're so thankful. And we just pray uh, for our time, Father. Help our minds to think rightly. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When a professing Christian fails morally, news outlets tend to jump all over that story. It's almost as if they're, they're watching and waiting for it to happen. They often use it as an attempt to, to make all Christians look bad, as they lump us all to them one example in with all the rest. The unfortunate reality behind that is I have a long list of examples I could give to you. I, I don't think that's gonna be a, a benefit to us today, and so I won't do so. But the truth is the world loves to think of the church as a body of hypocrites. They have, of course, been unable to recognize the difference between true Christians and false professors, those who have been born again and those who have not, and we wouldn't expect them to as they're spiritually blinded. They've also failed to recognize that the church does not claim to be perfect. I will say that the the world, they, they have recognized that immorality is a big deal in the church, it is a problem and should be taken seriously even if their motive is their motive for pointing that out is skewed we claim to be a people that live for God, a perfect God we claim to be a people that live for another world and so when our claim does not match our actions there is a problem We don't live to please men but God has given us a pattern for our lives. He's clearly given us specific actions that we need to take in order to make our salvation evident. In our text today, there are two God-glorifying actions that you must obey so that your life bears the marks of one who has been redeemed. So if you would, turn with me to the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to give our attention to verses 13 and 16 today, but I will begin reading at verse 10.
1: Scripture says, As to this
0: salvation, the prophets who prophesied out of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been announced to you, to those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As I said, we'll be focusing on uh, verses 13 through 16 today. And as Peter begins verse 13, he begins with the word, therefore. Now, you've likely heard it said that if you see the word therefore in Scripture, find out what it's there for. And so in this case, this therefore is a turning point. It's a turning point in this epistle. Peter's turning from, from statements of truth regarding salvation in verses 1 through 12. And now he's going to turn to the practical side of what the redeemed people of God must do in light of their salvation we were to word it another way, because God has caused you to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because you have an imperishable inheritance that will never fade away and is reserved for you, and because you have a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, now do this. Verses 1 through 12 of this epistle are all in the indicative. And that just means that Peter's making statements of fact. As we enter into verse 13 today, Peter's going to switch to issuing imperatives. In other words, these are ways in which we are to practice the truth of verses 1 through 12. The first command that Peter gives, it's not presented immediately in the text in verse 13. The first command is actually to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But as you see, if you're reading verse 13 and looking in your Bibles, following the word, therefore, and prior to our commandment, Peter says to prepare your minds for action, to keep sober. While those appear to be commands are actually participles. Participles, as our pastor had told us a couple weeks ago and reminded us of, participles can look like verbs, they can act like verbs, But they're not. They do typically have I-N-G on the end if they're in the present. Now, these participles, they're not the main thrust of this verse. But they are absolutely necessary for us to carry out uh, the, the, the command that Peter gives to fix your hope. And so we cannot minimize their importance in this text. The first participle that Peter gives us, "prepare your minds for action." The Legacy Standard Bible uh, translates that as "having girded your minds for action." The word "girded" or "to gird up the loins of your mind" is really a good way to translate this. It really paints the picture for us. It is the preparing of the mind, as, as we see in many of our translations. But we, we can't miss what it means to gird. There's, there's an ancient practice behind this that really, again, paints that picture. What is meant by girding is this. Now, in the time of writing, when Peter wrote this epistle, that men would often wear long robes or tunics. So they're long, loose-flowing clothing that if you tried to, to do any type of manual labor or tried to run at any, type of, any, any distance, it uh, would make it very difficult. You could likely trip, and so they needed to do something with that long rope, so it wouldn't be in their way. If they let it hang down, like I said, you may trip. They wouldn't be able to complete their task efficiently. So what they would do is they'd pull up the robe and, and tuck it into their girdle or a, a, like a belt around their waist. And that way they'd be free to move, move around as, as they need and complete the task that they're trying to to complete. Ladies, you may think of wearing a long dress and trying to run or or complete a task in that. All of us could probably relate to the the idea of rolling up our sleeves to get something done. Whether you're carrying something heavy or trying to complete, uh, whether you're building something, uh, you need to, you you can't afford to, to lose your grip. And so you need to remove any hindrances to getting that done, like the sleeves. But Peter, he doesn't use uh, this, this girding up the loins of your mind or the girding up the loins or the preparing of your minds literally. He uses it in a metaphorical sense. He, he relates it to the mind. You need to prepare your minds for action. So he's not asking us to literally gird up our clothing so we don't trip, but he's talking about the mind. And in Scripture, the mind... Is the entire inner being. So, so don't think about just your brain. Your brain is the physical, your mind is the spiritual. We need to have in mind here all of your mental and spiritual faculties. So the idea here that those who've been born again, given new life through the Lord Jesus Christ, you would cut off those loose flowing thoughts that would lead you down a line of thinking that's absolutely contrary to the word of God and the way that a believer should think. That's an ever-present danger in our lives, is it not? We live in a world full of mental trip-ups. And if we're not prepared believers, we will find ourselves succumbing to a line of thinking that is not proper for us. If your mind is not right, your life will not be right. The way you live will not be right. One commentator notes on the specific phrase of preparing your minds. He says, loose thinking is creative of loose living. Loose thinking is creative of loose living. So it's vital to have a disciplined mind. If you don't, the way you live will reflect that. Now, often it's our own slothfulness that gets us in trouble, is it not? It's our own slothfulness that keeps us going back to scrolling on our phones or or partaking of any other distraction other than the words of life. It's often our own fault that we don't think rightly. We allow ourselves to be too influenced by this world, brethren. And it leaves our minds with something. It leaves our minds saturated with something other than the Word of God. And it's ultimately God's truth, the truth, that's going to help us to prepare our minds. Our minds are not prepared by simply avoiding particular things, but filling it with the right thing. In Ephesians 6.14, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now in that context, Paul is, or sorry, as a reminder, to, to gird up your the loins is to tuck in that excess clothing. So you pull everything together. And in this context, in Ephesians 6.14, Paul is writing about the armor of God. You're probably familiar with that passage. He talks about how the believer is to stand firm against the the schemes of the devil, and how we're, we're not at war with uh, flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. We have a spiritual enemy, and we, we cannot enter that battle unprepared. And that battle is fought with truth. So think of truth as this belt that supports us, this belt that supports us. It's holding everything together. And it's going to keep us from tripping up.
1: Now relate that to Peter's words. Use truth to prepare your mind. We
0: need to obey Philippians 4:8, which says, Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence. And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. If you need to ask yourself whether your thought life is on target or whether it misses the mark, here's your text. Use
1: this verse as a checklist to see and test yourself and test your thought life. Let me also read to you Colossians 3, 1, verse 1, 1, and 2.
0: It says, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. And so getting our minds to think rightly. It's biblical, and it involves thinking on eternal matters, not just the things that we see here on on this earth, the things that we have to deal with on this earth. And I'm not just talking, and Peter's not just talking, and the Bible's not just talking, simply about the power of positive thinking. We're not just aiming to be optimists, but we're aiming to think biblically, and to think in in a godly manner. This is tying up the loose thoughts of our minds. We cannot allow them to have any place in our lives as believers. So going back then to the LSB translation of 1 Peter 1.13. Having girded your minds for action. Now draw your attention back to that because you you can hear the completeness behind that. You can hear the completeness in that action. Having girded your minds for action. So What Peter's saying is, in order to complete the main imperative, which I mentioned is to fix your hope completely on the grace to come, he says you need to tighten up your thinking. You need to prepare your minds for this. It's the the necessary first step. Before we fix our hope, we need to prepare our minds for action. We need to gird up the loins of our minds. Following what Peter says there, what Prepare your minds for action. He goes on to say,
1: keep sober in spirit. So Peter continues to add to what is
0: necessary to complete before, before that main command. Before you fix your hope fully on grace, you need to prepare your minds for action. And You need to continuously be sober in spirit. When we think of soberness, what comes to mind? tend to think of alcohol, right? We tend to think of the dangers of alcohol, how that impacts the human body, and even more specifically, uh, the way one thinks. Alcohol impairs the mind. And while those things are true, uh, Peter's not commenting on the use of alcohol. It's not his intention. And that's why, if you're reading from the LSB or the NASB, You'll see that the translators included in this, in in spirit, it's in italics, which means it's not in the original language, but it was added uh, to help us to understand what the author's intent was. So the idea is not to avoid the intoxication of alcohol. While that's good and that's that's right, avoid the intoxication of alcohol. The Bible would would speak against drunkenness. But it's the intoxication of our senses, that Peter's aiming at. So think of a a mental and spiritual
1: sobriety. To be sober means to be self-controlled.
0: Have a steady mind where where you can correctly evaluate the things that you're you're seeing, the things all around you, the things that you hear. You have to be
1: level-headed in the Christian life. You cannot be thrown off balance. One commentator says this. Don't let your mind
0: drink in the things that numb your mind and heart to the value of God's grace. If you do, if you do drink in the things that numb your mind and heart to the value of God's grace, You're going to be the opposite of sober. You will be the opposite of sober. And brothers and sisters, you need to rather, rather than do that, you need to wash yourself with the water of God's word. And and if you are uh, allowing these things to come into your mind that should not be, you need to repent. Repent of allowing your mind to be drawn away from other things uh,
1: that are opposed to the word of God. Wash yourself with God's word. participle be sober is written in the present tense. That means it's a
0: continuous action. So we don't ever stop being sober. We cannot stop being sober. We need to continue and, and always
1: be gripped by truth. We need to always be gripped by the truth. Do not start being sober, and then let up. You are to fix your hope on future grace, as Peter tells us. You must have a prepared mind. Then, you must remain self-controlled in your mind. Once you do those things, once you've prepared your mind for action, Always remain
0: self-controlled. It's at that point you can carry out the main command, the main imperative of verse 13. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our world has a different hope, a different definition of hope, I should say. Those outside of Christ, they cannot have the hope that the Bible speaks of. In your day-to-day, and you probably use it this way as well, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you often hear hope uh, used in reference to our weather, what the weather's going to be like, or a sporting event. I-, I hope that it doesn't rain today.
1: I hope that my favorite team wins the game today. Many examples we could use for that. But you know, the weather... And the
0: outcome of a, of a football game, or whatever uh, sport it might be, it's completely out of control of the person. We cannot control the weather. The weather is in the hands of our sovereign God. And No fan of a football team has an impact on the game that they're tracking with, though some may argue that. So this hope that the world speaks of, it's ultimately, they're just wishing. They're just wishing for something. They're just wishing for a great outcome or or great weather. But that's the world's hope. The hope that Peter writes of, he's not talking uh, uh, just about a, a possibility, something that might happen. But in Scripture, hope, and in this case, hope is a confident expectation. It's a sure thing. It's an absolutely sure thing. The believer, the church, We can have hope in the promises of God. We can be sure that what God
1: says that he will do, or what God has said he will do, he will do. So what does Peter say our hope should be fixed on? The grace. The grace to be
0: brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can have a confident expectation God will provide for us a future grace. Now the question is probably rolling through your minds. Do we not already have grace? Have we not already experienced the grace of God? The answer to that is yes. But only for those who are in Christ. Salvation comes by the grace of God. And we can have an assurance of that we can be sure of our salvation. If you have genuinely been born again by the Spirit of God, by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure. Now salvation, being born again, is not a simple mental acknowledgement. We're not just Acknowledging that facts are true. We're not just acknowledging that Jesus Christ existed. The demons even believe that. And they know that he rules and reigns and he's coming back and that they're, 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 they're predestined to eternal damnation. They know those things. They know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he died on the cross to save sinners, to bear the sins of all who would believe. Even demons know that the demons don't trust Jesus Christ as Lord they have the knowledge but they have not been born again so if you are here today and you do not have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not experienced the grace of our God turn to him today Submit your lives to him. If you do so, in faith, you can be saved from eternal damnation, which is the just wrath of God for those who reject his mercy. If you reject his mercy, that is what you will receive. And so I plead with you, do not leave here today without doing something about your eternal destination. repent of your sin and trust in Christ. You do not know what's going to happen when you leave here today. You do not know what tomorrow brings either. So deal with this today. What will you do with Christ? For my brothers and sisters here, for those who are in Christ, you have experienced the grace of God. And we can be ever so thankful for that. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a verse you're probably all familiar with. You could probably quote. It says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no man may boast. So that no one may boast. For by grace you have been saved. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 and 4. Explains that all are guilty before God. All have fallen short of his glory. All have sinned. But for those who believe, they're justified by or as a gift by grace through Christ. When I say justified, I don't mean made righteous, but declared righteous through uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ, which means that Christ's righteousness has been. A reckon to our account, we are viewed as if we've lived Christ's life in another way of saying that. So for those who believe, they are justified as a gift of grace through Christ. That same evidence of justification is found in Romans 4. And Paul discusses that. He uses Abraham and David as examples of that. And that's just to give you, I just want to give you the context because I want to read to you uh, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul addresses grace in Christ, even in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of god and so the grace of god in the life of the believer it's evidenced all throughout scripture now i just i just gave you some 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 quick examples it's not just in romans three four and five it's all throughout scripture but christians are they're, they're saved by grace they're sustained by the grace of god And here in Romans 5, Paul says, it is currently where we stand. So the question then is, what is so future about the grace that Peter speaks of? What Peter refers to here, when he's speaking about grace, he's referring to the the fullness of our salvation. He's talking about the completeness of our salvation. We can have assurance of our salvation, as I've noted, But we don't yet see it with our eyes. We're not yet with Christ. And so I I want you to think of this grace as as the inheritance that Peter speaks of uh, previously in his epistle, in verses that we've covered in the past. It is uh, the the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, of verse 4, the the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and fading, and ultimately kept for us, and in verse 5, I'm Speaking of 1 Peter chapter 1, just so we're clear. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he speaks of a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So, brothers and sisters, your, your inheritance, it, it's kept by God, and, and that would be a, enough for us to hear that, to trust the Lord in his word. But, but Peter uh, says more than that. He says it can't fade away not going to be destroyed, it's not going to be tarnished in any way, and it's reserved. If we look back at verse 13, Peter states that this grace, it is to be brought, or it will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now now listen to to, to, to how he words that, it will be brought. And so that, that just adds to how sure this is. This is absolutely going to happen for us. We will experience the grace of God, the fullness of the grace of God, when Jesus Christ returns. Peter does not say that this might happen, but he says it will. It will be brought to you. This grace will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, when Christ returns, when Christ comes again, and when Christ is revealed to us. First John three two. First John three two tells us we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. It's at that time, this grace that's uh, it, it will be present. It will no longer be spoken of as future, but it will be present. We will be experiencing it, and it is a sure thing. And we must place our hope in it. Now, this command that Peter gives us to fix our hope on this future grace. It is given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it carries urgency to it. We must do this, and we must do this now. Do not place your hope on this in a, in a, in a half-hearted manner. <clears throat> but Peter says completely. Fix your hope completely. Don't do it partially, but all of your hope must be fixed on this grace. Put all your eggs in one basket, brethren. Put all your eggs in the basket of this future grace. Not a little hope here, not a little hope there, but all of it on future grace that will be brought to you. It's a guarantee. Do not hope in this world. This world is fading. It will not be here forever. Don't even hope in everything going as planned in your life. Peter's already told us that that's not the case in, in early verses in chapter 1. He's told us that we're going to face trials if, if God so pleases to, 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 to test us in that way. Those trials, they'll, they'll be as a, as a fire that refines us. It's going to happen. So don't fix your hope there. Don't fix your hope on everything going as you want it to go. Now, I do think it would be helpful to remind us, to be
1: reminded of who who, who is Peter's audience. Peter's audience is experiencing trials. They're
0: experiencing hatred from the world. And that that hatred, that that persecution that they're experiencing, it's only going to get worse. And what I want you to do, uh, Medina Bible Church, is put yourself in their shoes.
1: Put yourself in their shoes. Because that is our situation. Maybe not to the same extent, but we cannot be ignorant of what's going on in
0: this world. We can't be ignorant of what's happening around us. Our world is growing in its love for debauchery. And it is salivating over, it, over the fulfillment of its own lust. It laughs at truth. It should be quite evident to us that we're not friends of the world. We are not friends of the world. They mock our faith. They mock the Lord Jesus Christ in absolutely blasphemous ways. And that's going to continue. It's not going to stop. Without Christ and without Without true hope, we have absolutely every reason to panic and to fill ourselves with anxiety to
1: the greatest degree. But that's without Christ. And that's without uh, true hope. Now, of course, filling ourselves
0: with anxiety is, is not what we ought to do. We must not. But we must perfectly... And fully fix our hope on that future future inheritance, the future grace. And brothers and sisters, do not hesitate to follow through with this. Do not hesitate. Gird up the loins of your mind, continuously being sober. Fix
1: your hope on future grace. Insofar as you follow this command, you will flourish.
0: Now, when I say that. Not saying it's going to make things perfect for you, because again, we know that's not true. But this hope, it will sustain you. It will sustain you, believer, in the difficult times, in the difficult labor of being faithful to Christ in a world that is in a culture that absolutely opposes us. This is how you stand firm. Fix your hope on future grace. Now, as you've been called to, to think like a child of God, to fix your hope on God's grace, let us also turn our attention to uh, chapters four, uh, sorry, verses 14 and 16, where, where Peter turns our attention to how we must act in light of our salvation. So point number two is conduct yourself in holiness. Point number one, I don't think I mentioned it, as is typical, uh, is to fix your hope on future grace. Number one, fix your hope on future grace. Number two, conduct yourself in holiness. I'm just making sure everybody's following along. Verses 14 through 16, Peter wrote, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter turns from hope to holiness. Why does he do that? Or or what's the connection there? Because those who do not have their hope fixed in the proper place will not cultivate holiness in their lives. They will not live holy lives if their hope is not in in what what God says our hope should be in, and what he commands our hope should be in, which again, is that future grace. I've already read to you 1 John 3.2. I'm going to read that again. I'm uh, going to Uh, Bring verse 3 in along with it. It says this. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the longing for Christ's return... (coughs) Well, you will experience that future grace. And having your hope fixed on it, it is going to impact how you live your life. Your
1: your, your hope must be aimed correctly to live correctly. In order to live as God would have us live, in order to live
0: uh, pure lives as our Heavenly Father is pure, we must fix our hope on that grace. So that's the connection. When Peter comes to, to verse 14, he, he starts with, as obedient children. So this is who he's writing to. This is, this is a, a reminder of who his audience is. They are obedient children, he says, but, but it, it should be more literally understood as children of obedience. I know that sounds very similar, but, but Peter's not commenting on their behavior, he's not trying to compliment them.
1: What he's actually doing is characterizing them. Listen to how the Apostle Paul refers to unbelievers, and that'll help us
0: understand why I say it's a characterization rather than a compliment. In Ephesians 2.2, the Apostle Paul wrote, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. He casts it at the end. Sons of disobedience. That's how he refers to unbelievers. <clears throat> all, of those, all of us in this room were at one point. For those of us who are in Christ, all of us were at one point, uh, dead in our sins, influenced by the prince of the power of the air, and that, that, is, that is Satan. And it's
1: Paul, Paul calls these unbelievers sons of disobedience. Now, Paul also makes that reference to sons
0: of disobedience in, in Ephesians 5.6 and Colossians 3.6, where he says the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so that contrasts with what Peter's saying, and what he's calling his audience, children of obedience. So we were once dead in our sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. And while these, these specific verses that we're looking at don't mention this, uh, we know that we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've been given the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us, and we've been adopted into the family of God. Scripture calls us that a new creation in Christ. As a new man with a new heart, new desires, obedience characterizes who we are. So we're no longer sons of disobedience, but we're children of obedience. Now, as we saw in verse 13, the main command of fixing our hope, it was preceded by those two participles, preparing your minds for action and being sober. Peter does something similar here in verses 14 through 16. The main command in verses 14 through 16 is to be holy. And Peter perceives that with a participle or with words that that are going to complement our action of of being holy. He perceives it with uh, the necessary means of of being holy, which is to not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Now, what does Peter mean uh, by ignorance? I would... uh, would say that what Peter's referring to when he says ignorant, he's talking about the spiritually dead, spiritually ignorant. And I get that from Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 17 uh, through 18. In that text, Paul talks about, he gives us ways in which the Gentiles or or the ungodly pagans, he, he tells us how the ungodly walk, how they live. And how do they live? He describes them as those who walk in the futility of their mind, which Means that they don't use their minds for anything profitable. Their, their minds are useless. They are darkened in their understanding and they're excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance in them. Because of the ignorance in them and because they have hard hearts. And so when Peter speaks of, of not being conformed to the lusts which were yours and your ignorance, he's, he's not speaking about believers. Oh, sorry, I'm referring to the Apostle Paul here. So the, the description, the ungodly, they walk in a way that they're, they're in the futility of their mind. Uh, they don't use their minds for anything profitable. But they're darkened in their sin. They're excluded from the life of God because of this, their ignorance. And that's not a description of believers. Because Paul says that in that text, he says, you no longer walk in this way. You no longer walk in this way, which means you once did. But because of your new nature in Christ, you're no longer ignorant. You're no longer unaware of spiritual things. And so Peter says, avoid, avoid living like you once did. Avoid living like you used to in your, your pre-Christ days. Those, those lusts, those desires that you had before you were saved, don't entertain them. Do not be conformed to them. To be conformed, it's it's to be molded, to be shaped by them. Brothers and sisters, we must avoid every possibility of that happening in our lives. We must uh, uh, remove ourselves from every situation that could make provision for the flesh. Now Peter says, you want to turn there with me really quick since it's in 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapter 4, I'm just going to read verse 3. Peter says this, he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So the days of sin being your master, those days are over, that chapter's closed. Close the book and burn it. Be done with that former way of life. And, 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 and do not look back on it. Peter says in that text, Now I turned away from it. So he'll continue on he would, he would continue on if you read verse four as well, because in all this they're surprised, referring to the Gentiles, the ungodly, that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, but they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And so for those around you when, you, when you no longer conform yourself to the way you once lived, when you no longer live that way, the people around you will be shocked. and they'll, They will malign you. They will wonder how you turn from serving yourself to, to serving a living God. They may say absolutely nasty things about you, but we must not let that type of talk get to us. Peter said they will stand before God and give an answer for it. Just as they'll give an answer for that slanderous word, you will give an answer for the way you live your life. So what matters most? The way that they speak of you or your obedience to God who has caused you to be born again. The first step to being holy, to not be conformed to the ways of your former ignorance. In verse uh, verse 15, Peter says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So this is the second main command of our passage today. Who's the Holy One? The Holy One is God Himself. The translators help us by capitalizing it But there is only one who's worthy to bear that name. It is God. This is the Holy God that's revealed himself to us in his Holy Scripture. This is the uh, the Holy God who's uh, revealed himself to us in his Son, who is the Holy Lamb of God. This is the Holy God that Isaiah wrote of, or or that we see uh, Isaiah's vision in, in Isaiah chapter 6. The seraphim called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Apostle John records something somewhat similar in Revelation 4.8. It should be a similar sound to our ears. Uh, He wrote that the four living creatures around the throne of God, night and day, did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. No one else in all this world could ever or will ever be spoken of as being holy to the superlative degree. No one will be spoken of holy in the way that God is holy. And it is that holy one, God, who has called you. And by called, Peter's referring to an effectual calling. So this is the the calling of salvation that that produced in you new life, as opposed to a general call of salvation, which is the, the general offer of the gospel to all but not all respond in faith, and so that's the difference between the general call and the effectual call. Believers hear the gospel call, hear the call of Christ, to come to Christ, and they respond, because it was God's plan for them to come to him. So God has called you, and he's called you effectively, effectually. And that's made evident, the fact that this is an effectual call, made evident by our context. Peter's writing to believers. He he addressed them as as children of obedience. And even uh, prior to that, we spent the first uh, first 12 verses addressing the realities of salvation, those who have been born again uh, by God. So Peter's audience is believers. He's writing to believers. Since you've been called by the Holy One, he says, be holy. Be holy in all your behavior. Be set apart. Be separate. Don't, don't live like the world. We should think. We should uh, act differently because the culture, the culture has a God of its own. We serve different masters, and so we cannot live the way that they're living. Of course, it doesn't mean we seclude ourselves from them. We still love them. We still show them grace. We still proclaim the gospel to them. But The world world lives according to their own desires. And the Christian lives according to the commands of God. That is why Peter calls upon the written word of God. In verse 16, it says, Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God commanded it. And Peter's quoting from the book of Leviticus. Quotes from actually, there's, there's three places in the book of Leviticus where this, this command is found: Leviticus 11:44, Leviticus 19:2, and Leviticus 27. So what's significant is that number one, this is not a new command, it's not a new command for God's people. He has always intended his people to conform to his character. But in each of these three verses in Leviticus. Uh, uh, a different area of of life is addressed. Leviticus 11.44, dietary restrictions are addressed. Leviticus 19.2, social and religious duties. In Leviticus 27, uh, uh, various immoralities are addressed, such as uh, human sacrifices to false gods and turning to mediums or demons. And all of these are paired with the command to be holy. So, as each, uh, each area of life is addressed, it's summing up the whole of the Israelites' life. If they were to be holy in all their conduct. Now, Peter
1: says to you and I, be holy in all your conduct. Now, let me ask you, how's that going for you?
0: Are you holy as God is holy? Be holy as God is holy. That's that's a command that causes all of us to shrink back in our seats, does it not? But I want to encourage you. You do have a duty to follow this command. You do. Be holy as God is holy. But you cannot rely on yourself to get this done. You cannot rely on yourself to do this. In the original language, this command is written in the passive voice. What does that mean? It means that the subject, you... Believer is being acted upon by someone or something else. So you who are believers in God, it's God who is acting in this command. For you to be holy, God must be working in you to make it happen. Now, that's not the only command in scripture written in the passive voice. There are a few examples Um, I'll I'll give you one of them, and I'll give you another one just to write down. Um, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 18. The command in verse 18 is to be filled with the Spirit. Again, passive voice. It would literally be read as be being filled. Now, that doesn't really make sense in in English, and, and so we don't translate it that way. But the point is,
1: you are to be filled with the Spirit, but only God can fill you with the Spirit. Your duty, in that case, is to walk in the Spirit and obey the
0: Spirit. But God must ultimately fill you. Another example just for you to jot down, uh, for the sake of time, I won't won't go there. Uh, But Philippians 2, verse 12, is another example of that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who's at work in you. So, I just want to mention that uh, to help you to understand
1: the true meaning of
0: this command. There's a, there's a again, a, a, a part for you to play, but God must be at work in you for you to carry this out. In First Peter 2.12, Peter tells his audience to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the, the conduct, your conduct as a believer, can and does have, a, have an absolutely profound impact on those around you. Peter's, Peter's audience in the first century, they were slandered. They were slandered as evildoers. They were falsely accused of so many awful things, one of those being, uh, 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 being rebellious against the government. But in this epistle, Peter tells them ultimately to stand firm
1: and to stand out. <clears throat> Your conduct, believer, could be the thing
0: that the Lord uses to ultimately draw someone to himself. That's what he means when Peter says that they'll, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation.
1: When Christ returns, they will glorify God. They'll glorify Christ. And they'll do so because you lived like a Christian.
0: Also in First Peter, First Peter 3.1, Peter speaks to the wife of an unbelieving husband. He tells her to be submissive to him,
1: for you might just win him by your pure and respectful behavior. The influence of holy conduct does not just pertain to those in the outside world.
0: It does not just pertain to those you evangelize on the street or at your job, but it pertains to those in your own home. It pertains to those in your own family. Brothers and sisters, your, your conduct should be a witness to all
1: those around you. Now when I say that, it doesn't mean we don't use words, right? We
0: absolutely use words. We must use words. We have the greatest message to tell all. That Christ has died for sinners. But our holiness makes us effective witnesses. So if our lives are an absolute train wreck, no one's going to care what we have to say. No one will
1: care what we have to say. You'll just look like a fool to them. So brothers and sisters, be holy as God's holy. Now, does that mean we'll be perfect? Absolutely not. We
0: cannot be. We, we still live in a sinful world. Sin still remains. And we're not going to, be, uh, not going to reach perfection until we see the Lord. And so it doesn't be, mean we become exactly as God is. God is, is completely like no other. He's God. But it's our holiness that shows that we are of God. And so it's, it's the way we speak. We don't speak lies. We speak the truth. And as our, as our pastor included in the e-bridge, in the pastor's column, we're not to affirm darkness in any, shape, any way, shape, or form. No unwholesome talk should come out of our mouth, as Paul wrote in Ephesians. Only words that build up. So it's the way we speak, it's the way we act. We don't steal. Rather, we work hard. We work with excellence. We do all things uh, for, with excellence. We're kind, we're
1: loving, we're forgiving. We're slow to anger. We ought to be. We must be. William Gurnall, he was an English clergyman in the 1600s. He
0: says this. Say not that you have royal blood in thy veins and are born of God, except you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. I'm going to say that again. Say not that you have royal blood in thy veins and are born of God, except you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. If you're a Christian,
1: be marked by holiness. Be a marked and distinct Christian, one who has a holy father. Living in this world is not easy, brother. I know you know that. Christians,
0: us, we stand out like knights and soldiers in armor in the midst of vanity fair. The world is consumed with themselves and we're consumed with the next life. This is certainly not our best life now. We're consumed with taking every thought captive so that we can live in obedience to Christ so we can live holy lives. And my final plea to you, is ultimately, with this text in mind, Manina Bible Church, that you would think as the Lord would have you think and live as the Lord would have you live. Set your hope not on anything in this world,
1: but set your hope on the next. One day your salvation
0: will be complete. It will be complete and all the sins, all the struggles of this world
1: will quickly fade away. With the Lord's help, you can purify your way of life. We do all of this in honor of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Fix your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be holy as your God is holy. Let's pray. Father, you
0: are good and you are holy. And I pray that you'd help us to obey this text, to obey you, O Father, to be holy as you're holy. Help us to be witnesses. To this world, to those around us, to the unbelieving, that our lives may be a cause for them to think more deeply about their eternal destination. May you draw people to yourself, may we be instruments of that, that work that you do. Help us, Lord, to fix our hope on future grace. Help us, Lord. We cannot do any of this on our own. We cannot fix our hope. We live in a world that's so wicked, and it almost seems like it's spiraling out of control, but it's not. For you rule and reign. But help us to behold you. You will surely reign forever. Again, Lord, help us to obey this text Continue to do a work in our hearts. And I pray all these things in Christ's beautiful, wonderful name. Amen.